Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. We are uh, ready to get started for our 9 o'clock hour, and we're going to continue our study of what lies ahead, what Jesus said about the end times. Now, this is kind of an ongoing series. We've got so much to talk about in terms of the end times. Uh, as we've said many times, 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. So uh, if you study the whole counsel of God, you better be studying what lies ahead or you're missing out on 16% of the Bible. So we've uh, been kind of on this journey now for several months and we've spent the last few weeks talking about uh, specifically Jesus' teaching about His return, which of course is found in the Olivet Discourse, uh, which is uh, in Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21 and Mark 13. And we're focusing primarily on Matthew's account. And by way of review, because I know we've got people joining us all the time, either uh, live by live stream or on video recorded, uh, I've said many times that the Olivet Discourse represents the most comprehensive teaching anywhere in the Bible on the end times in one place. Now we get our end times theology from a lot of passages, particularly in the Old Testament, a lot of the prophets, a lot of minor prophets and the major prophets, uh, even some of the Psalms talk about the kingdom coming. Obviously in the New Testament, all of Paul's epistles touch on teachings related to the rapture and also even uh, the coming kingdom and Peter and, and some of Paul's teaching. Of course, you think of the book of Revelation, which is where most people's minds go when we think of the end times. But it, all of those give us different pieces of the puzzle. But in the Olivet Discourse, we have essentially a blow-by-blow -blow overview of everything that's going to happen leading up to the culmination of the kingdom, the return of Christ to inaugurate the kingdom, take the throne, rule with a rod of iron, the governments will be upon His shoulder. That'll be a nice day, won't it, when governments are actually subject to God in the flesh, the one who is perfect and perfect justice. And um, So we look forward to that day. So the Olivet Discourse uh, is, of course, Jesus' answer to the disciples' question. Uh, what will be the sign of your coming and of the coming kingdom, the end of the age? When will the kingdom arrive, in other words? They were very interested in that information. Uh, they uh, had been obsessed with the kingdom for three and a half years. Jesus' earthly ministry began with an announcement that the kingdom was at hand. And then he made several references to the kingdom throughout his ministry, including things like the parables about the kingdom. Uh, he talked about who would be... Uh, you know, who would serve it where in the kingdom. The disciples were very interested in this long-awaited messianic kingdom that the prophets of old had talked about. They wanted to know who would sit where. I remember one of the disciples' parents asked if her sons could sit on Jesus' right and left in the kingdom. Jesus told the disciples they would sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom. Uh, so if you really look through the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Christ, you see a running theme of the coming kingdom. Nowhere do we ever get the indication that the kingdom is spiritual, metaphorical, figurative. It's always recognized from the very beginning as brick and mortar, literal throne, literal temple, literal boundaries about the kingdom. I'm speaking this week, coming weekend in Tulsa at a Mid-America Prophecy Conference, and one of my two messages is on the, the Israel in, in Bible prophecy, or, or Israel in God's plan of the ages, I'm calling it. And I'm going to talk about, as we've talked about, uh, how the promises made to Israel of a kingdom were very specific. 
They included geographic boundary markers. They included very specific details. For example, nine chapters in Ezekiel give uh, essentially an architectural blueprint for the coming temple someday in the kingdom when Christ takes the throne. And so all of that is literal. There's no indication that it was uh, ever figurative. Uh, when Jesus gave the unconditional promise to David, or when God gave the unconditional promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, it was a promise of, of a throne and a temple and a kingdom. And David took that literally because he lived in a time when there were kings sitting on thrones. Um, I just got a call right before the service, right before this Bible study from a dear friend of mine in Idaho who's a pastor, and he calls me from time to time to ask questions about uh, theology, and he was asking about different modes of government in the ancient Near East, the Assyrian government, and even in, in, in later times, uh, the Roman and, and Greek governments, and, and how that you know impacted God's people during those times. And so David, when he was promised a kingdom and a, and a throne and a temple, a house, uh, he, of course, would have taken that literally, as he should have. And so uh, we saw Solomon build the temple, the first temple. Of course, it was destroyed by Babylon, or by, uh, yeah, Babylon in 586 B.C., and then we saw the Herod rebuild the temple in, in Jesus' day. That temple will be destroyed. The Antichrist is going to take uh, the throne in a satanic temple of sorts uh, in the tribulation period, and then ultimately the millennial temple will be where Christ himself takes up residence and rules the world. So, uh, this is important stuff because, as Paul said, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most pitiable. So we owe it to ourselves, not only because God gave us his revelation, his self-unveiling to mankind, and in this book we have everything we need for life and godliness, so why would we shun 16% of it? So it just makes sense. God gave us his word for a reason. But more than that, it gives us hope. It gives us, we talked way back at the beginning of the series on reasons to study end times prophecy, and it gives us uh, hope. It gives us a reminder that God's prophecies have been fulfilled. Remember, we get that 16% figure because we know roughly one-third of the Bible is prophetic, and half of that's already been fulfilled at Christ's first advent. So that leaves half of one-third, or one-sixth, which is roughly 16%, uh, awaiting fulfillment. So it reminds us that we serve a covenant-keeping God, a faithful God who keeps His Word, and uh, we uh, can look forward to these uh, things that are coming. Not only that, it reminds us that all things will be made right someday. In a world of inequities and unfairness and injustices, someday uh, Christ will take the throne and make all things new. And uh, so we, we long for that and we look forward to that. So with that introduction, we'll pick up where we left off. Just a reminder for those watching online that uh, the What Lies Ahead book, if you don't have it if, and you're here, they're on the table at the back. That's my comprehensive overview of, of the end times. If you're watching online, you can go to notbyworks.org and pick that up at the uh, online store and be sure to use that coupon code WLA. So just to review where we've been... Um, I've kind of broken down uh, an outline of the Olivet Discourse, and we have a chapter on, uh, on the Olivet Discourse in the book. It starts with the disciples' misplaced focus. Remember, Jesus in Matthew 23 had just rebuked the Jewish leaders, and, and he had said to them, you know, because of their unbelief, representing the nation of Israel, you will not see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that messianic prophecy in that uh, messianic Psalm 118. When the disciples heard that, uh, they were uh, quite taken aback and kind of 
Remember, Luke tells us that they had assumed the kingdom was going to come that week as they rode into Jerusalem. They thought, this is it, long-awaited kingdom is going to come. Christ is going to throw off the shackles of Rome and to take over the world in fulfillment of prophecy. And so they were trying to get their hands around how can Jesus be rebuking Israel as a nation and yet be about to usher in the, the kingdom for Israel. And so they point out the temple and they talk about how beautiful it is. As if to say, we're reading between the lines a little bit here, but the idea is, Lord, is, see this beautiful temple? Isn't it going to be great? And then, of course, Jesus rebukes them and says, not one stone, don't you understand? Not one stone will be left upon another until uh, you know, this temple is destroyed. And so then, now they're really troubled and they say, well then, Lord, what, what's going to be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age and the coming kingdom? And the entire rest of the uh, Olivet Discourse, beginning with point three on my outline there, is Jesus' answer to that question. And that's why it's such a helpful teaching in God's Word. It, it tracks perfectly with the book of Revelation, chapters 6 to 18, particularly chapter 6. And we looked at some of those parallels previously. But verses 4 to 14 give us general signs about the tribulation period. Jesus says, when you see these things, you know that my coming is near. And he describes the, some of the things that will take place during that final seven years prior to his return. The tribulation period, it's called, or uh, the 70th week of Daniel. And we talked about that in a previous session. If you haven't seen that, go back in, in our What Lies Ahead section on our website and watch that video. It's called Daniel's 490-year plan. The first 483 years of that plan that God revealed to Daniel, about 500 years before Christ, have already been fulfilled. But seven years await future fulfillment, that final seven-year period. Uh, the, the Hebrew word that is used in that prophecy is Shabuah, which means seven-year period. We showed that unequivocally from the context. So that final Shabuah, that final week, as it's translated sometimes in our English Bibles, awaits future fulfillment. And you'll hear it referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. The prophets talk about this period many, many times. They call it the great day of the Lord's wrath. The day of the Lord, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the, the uh, overflowing scourge. Uh, it's a time when uh, the cosmic struggle between good and evil, between God and Satan, reaches a climax. The wrath of God is being poured out upon the earth. The wrath of Satan is competing with that. Satan indwells the Antichrist. He takes over the world. He rules for seven years. At the midpoint of that seven-year period, he breaks his treaty that he had signed with Israel. He begins to persecute Israel and Jew, Jews, Jewish believers, and uh, he, you know, all hell literally breaks loose on the earth. And at the end of that seven years, we have the Battle of Armageddon when Christ comes back and ushers in the long-awaited kingdom. So after giving the general signs, then he kind of zeroes in, and he starts with that specific sign of what's called the abomination of desolation. And that starts in verse 15, and Jesus quotes the prophet Daniel by name, and Daniel's the one who predicted uh, God through Daniel, the, the abomination of desolation. And the abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist sets himself up as God, demands that worldwide worship, and uh, sacrifices a false sacrifice in the temple. And then we looked at the signs that immediately accompany the second coming. Uh, things like lightning flashing from the east to the west, cosmic signs, a, a, an earthquake like none that's ever been, been on earth before or ever will be. And then Christ comes back. 
And then last week, we picked up with the fig tree and the uh, analogy of Noah and the flood. And so just to review, the rest of the Olivet Discourse, starting with point six on the outline that you see on the screen, in your text, it starts with verse 32, are applications or exhortations relating to all of these signs that he's just given. So by the time you get to verse 31, Jesus has essentially answered the question, here's what it's going to look like. Watch for these signs. When you see these signs, you know my coming is near. My coming itself will look just like this, verses 27 to 31. And now he's going to give some, like a good preacher, some exhortation, sort of answer the so what question. And he starts with, uh, and I mentioned this last week, basically a parable followed by three analogies and then another parable. So in this goes into chapter 25. Remember in the original uh, text, there were no verse or chapter divisions. I talked about this Wednesday night. We kind of got off topic Wednesday night and ended up spending the whole evening on how we got our Bible and just answering some questions, uh, which was fine. It was very good. I've got some good comments from uh, people who watched it online. But we talked about how the verse and chapter divisions were not added till roughly 1551 by a guy named Stephanus. And uh, I mentioned that uh, he it's reputed, and I've actually seen some of the manuscripts. You can find pictures of these. And if you watch my uh, How We Got Our Bible 8 video series, uh, I go into great detail about this. It's a very comprehensive uh, series. But um, you can actually see manuscript fragments that show where his uh, pen or pencil or quill or whatever he was using at the time would hit down on the papyrus and the scrolls and the things that he was using, not so much the scrolls for the New Testament, but these uh, manuscript fragments, and leave a mark. But it's reputed that he, he, he divided it up while riding the circuit on horseback, and sometimes his horse would hit a bump or jog, and the pen would drop in a strange place, and that's why we have such sometimes unusual verse divisions. But when you read the Bible, you need to remember those were added many, many years later, 1,500 years later, and they were for our benefit so we can study it more easily, but you need to read for context and flow of thought. So that is certainly true of the Olivet Discourse, and this uh, little section that starts with a parable, three analogies, and then ends with a parable, you know, transverses from chapter 24 into chapter 25, and it's all about being ready. I call this the watchfulness or readiness section of the Olivet Discourse. So the fig tree, we talked a lot about that. Just to review, it's not a prophecy. Nothing in the text indicates it's a prophecy. Never was a prophecy. It's just a parable. And he says, when you see a fig tree's leaves start to sprout, you know that summer is near. Similarly, when you see all these things I've just described in the previous 31 verses, you know that my coming is near. Pretty simple analogy, right? Pretty simple parable. Uh, and that's a good thing for the nation of Israel and indeed the whole world to remember once this final seven-year period sets in. Uh, remember the parable of the fig tree. Do you see some of these signs? Well, it's just like when you see, as we see all around us now, leaves beginning to turn green, you know summer must be near. And then he gives some analogies. <clears throat> the analogy of Noah, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of Noah people were, and then he describes how they were essentially going about their life, ignoring the warnings of judgment that Noah was issuing, that God was issuing through Noah. And we gave a chart uh, last week that kind of explained the comparison between the judgment coming with Christ's return at, at uh, the second coming 
versus the judgment that happened in Noah's day. And his point is to be ready. You don't know the day or the hour, so be ready. Be watchful. Be prepared. Uh, we talked a lot about how the analogy of Noah has nothing to do with the rapture. The rapture is not found in the Olivet Discourse. The rapture, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, is a mystery, something previously unrevealed that does not relate to Israel. It relates only to the church. The rapture, as we've contrasted several times in this series so far, is about blessing and rescue. And, and the second coming is about judgment and wrath. And uh, the, the second coming is for the nation of Israel. The rapture is for the church. So the church wasn't even in existence at the time Jesus was giving this sermon from the top of Mount Olives, and uh, Mount of Olives. And so, uh, even though sometimes people read into the analogy of Noah because the language sounds kind of rapturesque, it is not. Uh, when he talks about two will be in a field, one taken, the other left, the one taken was taken away in judgment, just as it was in Noah's day. Uh, you got to remember the analogy in Noah's day: the ones left behind to populate the earth were the righteous. The eight people on the ark, the ones taken away, were swept away by the flood in judgment. And in fact, Luke's account of the same uh, analogy, same exact verbiage as we showed last week, shows that the ones taken away were destroyed. So the ones taken away in the analogy of, the, of Noah are not the ones that are raptured. This is all about Christ's return. And indeed, that's the question that the disciples had asked. They didn't know anything about the rapture. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until the next day that Jesus, in the upper room on Thursday night, the same night that he celebrated the Passover, washed the disciples' feet, instituted the Lord's Supper, he begins to hint at a different event. Remember, he says, if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, he's gone away in heaven, you will be also. And that's an allusion to the rapture, which is then spelled out in greater detail as the progress of Revelation goes on. And uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, begins to tell us more about it. So uh, this had, the disciples had asked about the second coming and the kingdom, not about the rapture. And so we pick up today in verse 20, or excuse me, 43, with the second of these three analogies. And this is the uh, householder and the thief. So in verses 43 and 44, we read, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. You see this constant theme. This is all about exhortation and application. Uh, Jesus is saying, and it, be, and it began back with the fig tree parable, Know this, when you see the... Tender leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see all these things I've just described, you know that my coming is near, even at uh, the doors. That's, by the way, the theme of the conference in Tulsa this weekend. And if, you, if any of you don't already have plans, it's not too late to come. I know it's a, about a 10-hour drive, but it's, it's going to be a fantastic conference, great speakers, the Mid-America Prophecy Conference. And I'll be speaking twice on Spirit of the Antichrist and Israel and God's Plan of the Ages uh, but the theme of that conference is at the doors, taken from this verse. And even though he's talking about the second coming here, we who are awaiting the rapture can similarly look at the signs and kind of connect the dots and say, oh, we see the stage being set for all of these end times events. And then, um, so then you pick up in verse 36, and he, he sort of sets the tone for all of these parables and analogies to follow. In verse 36, no one knows the day or the hour, and therefore, be ready. So you're going to see this continued reference to 
be ready. That's why I call these readiness parables. So, uh, you know, when this this is a pretty simple analogy, frankly. If uh, if you if if a thief sent you a memo and says, "Hey, just a heads up, I'm going to break into your house next Tuesday night at two o'clock in the morning." Well, if I got a memo like that, uh, me and 357 of my friends are going to be waiting for him at the front door, right? So uh, I'm not going to be caught off guard. But uh, thieves don't do that. And so he's just sort of reminding you to be on guard, be ready. Now, it, this would be a good point to uh, kind of anticipate what I know a lot of people ask when I speak at prophecy conferences is, given how detailed the lead up to the return of Christ is in Scripture. You know, you know what's going to happen almost year by year. The seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. You've got 144,000 witnesses being sent out. You've got the two witnesses. You've got all kinds of things happening, the abomination of desolation. You would think it would be next to impossible for those who are alive at that time, particularly the Jews who know, know what Jesus has taught here, uh, to miss it. Why, why the, I guess the, the question on some people's minds is, why the continued exhortation to be ready when it should be obvious? In other words, you might say, well, indeed, he sort of has telegraphed when he's coming, right? But the fact of the matter is two things. First of all, remember one of the thing, repeated themes in the first part of the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' caution against deception. And we've talked at length about how deception is going to get worse and worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13. And it will reach unprecedented heights during this final seven-year period. That's why Jesus begins the very first words out of his mouth in answer to the disciples' question in this sermon are, be not deceived. And he repeats that several times. So deception will cause people to miss the signs. That's number one. Number two, let's not forget uh, the warning of uh, the the, the uh, analogy of Noah. Um, there you had you know all this repeated caution and Noah every day saying, "Be ready, be warned, the flood is coming," and yet people just turn a deaf ear. And the same thing will happen during that seven-year uh, tribulation period. Uh, not only that, we can look at history uh, for uh, an example of why it's necessary for Jesus to continually give these readiness exhortations. The first advent of Christ was similarly telegraphed, you might say. It was there were very detailed, very specific prophecies in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures that told them exactly what to look for. And you know, a, a virgin would conceive, a virgin would bear a child. It would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, you would have a forerunner in, in John the Baptist. Uh, and so many, so much, remember, you know, one, half of one-third of the Bible is already fulfilled. So, and yet, they missed it, right? Israel didn't crown him as king of kings. They crowned him with thorns. Now, we know having the whole counsel of God and, and with the right retrospective of knowing God's plan of the ages, that all of that was part of his plan. But humanly speaking, on a temporal, from a temporal perspective, we could argue the same thing about the first heaven as the second heaven. How could they possibly have missed it? So we see a historical precedent for God's people ignoring God's teaching and missing God's fulfillment of prophecy. So uh, this is a very simple 
a little analogy, analogy of the householder and the thief. Be ready. You know, watch out for deception. Uh, if, the house, if the master of the house had known when the thief was coming, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be uh, broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. So any questions about this one before we move on to the next analogy? Or any questions about anything we've talked about? I just kind of shot right out and I don't think I've taken a breath. So uh, any, any questions or comments at this point? Yes? I'm just... Uh was struck that I never really made the connection, but that there's a line in I saw the light. Oh yeah. And Jesus Jesus came like a thief in the night. And yeah. I'm not always I never connected that with that verse. Yeah. Because um, I always thought it was kind of a strange way to be talking about Jesus. Yeah, that's right. But well, now that totally makes sense. Yeah. It's cool to make to to see that uh, way back when when Hank was doing that song, he was well versed. Yeah. In, in the in the Bible. Yeah, people used to know their scriptures well, a lot better than we do today. Obvious, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it sure is. Today they shun it. I mean, I I uh, served at a church one time that didn't didn't want anything to do with the Bible. They didn't think the Bible was you know they hated it. Whenever I said the Bible is clear, no, it's not clear. Nobody understands it and so forth. But did Hank write that song or did he just sing I, it? I think he wrote it, but I may be wrong. I saw Maybe the light. Yeah. That's a good one. So, so yeah, Jesus died between two thieves, but he wasn't a thief, so it seems like a strange thing. But it's a reference to this exactly. verse, like a thief in the night. In fact, there was an old 70s uh, motion picture, some of you may remember, uh, A Thief in the Night. And I think there was a follow-up image of the beast. They were basically like films about end times prophecy depicting it, similar to like the Left Behind films in more recent times. And But, yeah, it's it's the idea is... He's going to come at a time when you don't expect. Now, again, this is related to his second coming and those who are alive during that day. And uh, I, I don't want to rehash necessarily everything we've talked about, but I know we're always picking up a new uh, listeners and, and viewers. So that whole uh, passage, uh, by the way, I did look up my article on this generation, Matthew 24, 34, it was like 50 pages, and so I decided I'm not going to make copies. And But if you want it, it's a detailed treatment of that, showing all the different views and why the view that I presented last week is obviously the, the, the one that fits the context. Let me know, and I'll be glad to email you the PDF. But when he said this generation, he's talking about the generation that sees these signs. And I showed you that by looking at the antecedents of the pronouns, right? So he wasn't talking about the generation to whom I'm speaking. He was talking about the generation about whom I'm speaking. So remember the context. When you see all these signs, just like when you see a, a tree begin to sprout green leaves, you know summer is near. When you see all these signs, you know my coming is near. Indeed, this generation, the one that sees these signs, is going to be the one that sees my return. So it's not uncommon, as we've talked about. In fact, it's the norm for prophets delivering the Word of God to speak in their historical cultural setting about a future day. Right? I mean, every prophecy is, is that way. I mean, there are some prophecies that have an immediate near-term fulfillment, but in terms of the Messianic prophecies, I mean, Isaiah's audience didn't see the virgin conceive and have a child. They didn't. Micah's audience didn't see Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah, yet they were speaking to that audience. Jesus is speaking to the first century believing Israel, represented by the disciples, about a generation that will one day see his return. Remember earlier that week, I think it's in Matthew 22, Jesus had said to the unbelieving Jewish leaders, I'm going to take this kingdom from you and give it to a nation worthy of it. 
meaning the future believing nation of Israel. So uh, don't be confused by the this generation language. A lot of bad theology has been uh, built upon that. Yeah? Uh, so you mentioned the, uh, the government will be on his shoulders, which always been a curious term for me, and, but because I, I, I don't have any other expansion on that in the word, but I'm curious, would that, the point of that being on his shoulders be the point of his return, Christ's return? Is that when the government is on his shoulders? Absolutely, yeah. So the question is about the government being upon his shoulders. Let's look at that passage, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. And this is a famous passage that we often love to quote and sing about at Christmas. And indeed, it, it includes uh, the fir- a prophecy of the first advent. But like so many uh, prophecies... Uh, in the Old Testament, they merge together in the same sentence often, the first and second advents of Christ. And it's often been described this way. It's as if the prophets of old, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit by representing God, were looking down through the annals of time uh, linearly, and they would see two mountain peaks, but not realize there was a huge valley in between them. Right, you know, as we look off into the Rocky Mountains from our perspective, sometimes these two mountain peaks, one in the foreground and one behind it, seem fairly close. But if you were to try to hike that, you'd find they might be 100 miles apart in some cases. So similarly, when we see Old Testament passages, and this is one of them, sometimes they talk both of the first and second advent. So if we pick it up in Isaiah 9:6, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now, if you've got a good formal equivalent translation of the Bible, like we talked about Wednesday, you'll notice that child and son are both capitalized there, as they should be, because that's referring to the coming Messiah. Okay? And, and by the way, in the context of Isaiah's prophecy, it points back to Isaiah 7 and the virgin who would conceive. That's the child that he's talking about. But then notice the very next phrase at the second part of verse 6, And the government will be upon his shoulder... From that point on, this all relates to the ultimate coming of Christ when he's crowned King of Kings. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now let me ask you, since the first advent of Christ 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, have we had no end to peace? (laughs) Absolutely not. We've had no end to war, right? Um upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So all of that from and the government will be upon his shoulder to the end of verse 7 relates to Christ's second advent when he's going to come and fulfill all of prophecy. We see this again and again. Um, Let's flip back to the New Testament in Luke chapter 1. Go there first. And this is um, when uh, Gabriel announces the birth of the Messiah to Mary, right? Luke chapter 1 and verse 31. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Highest. And watch this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, that's Israel, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
That's a direct reference back to many Old Testament prophecies, including the one we just read in Isaiah 9. And, and going back further, because he references the throne of David, uh, the throne of his father David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, when we're promised, David was promised that his seed would take the throne and reign forever. Now, 2 Samuel 7 has both an immediate fulfillment, because he was talking about Solomon, but clearly it has an ultimate eschatological fulfillment, because Solomon's not still reigning on the throne forever, right? So that, when David was told his seed would reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, that's talking about the ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ. So that's what Mary was told. She conceived the Christ child by the Holy Spirit. He was born. He grew up. He ministered for three and a half years. Then he went to the cross to pay the penalty for sins. Isaiah talks about that in Isaiah 53. Daniel also alludes to the fact that the Messiah would be cut off. So he became the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And then he went straight to Jerusalem to take the throne, right? No. No, he didn't. He rose back up to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And, you know, 40, years, 40 days after his resurrection. And what does the Bible tell us on that occasion? That this same Jesus whom you saw go will so return in like manner to fulfill the rest of prophecy. So a delay in the fulfillment of prophecy does not mean a jettisoning of that prophecy. And so many people after 2,000 years, and we talked about this going back several weeks now, so many people, their, their hearts have grown cold, they are tired of waiting, and so they've kind of given up hope. But Peter tells us that is going to happen. Uh, if you remember in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, he says... Uh, Verse 3, knowing this, scoffers will come in the last days, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they are from the beginning. So here we are 2,000 years later, and we still wait. We wait for his return. and But it hasn't happened yet. But it's going to happen. Just as the first Advent prophecies were fulfilled literally, there's no indication whatsoever in God's word that the second Advent prophecies, prophecies will not be fulfilled uh, literally. Now, one other thing, that was a great question. I want to point out another example of this twofold prophetic teaching where you've got a prophecy, a prophet giving a prophecy, half of which is fulfilled in the first advent, the rest of it won't be fulfilled to the second advent. So, flip back to Luke, and we'll go to chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, this is the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry after the baptism and the temptation. And Luke is recording this, in, and he says in chapter 4, verse 17, or let's pick it up in verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, this is talking about Jesus, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, so the scroll of Isaiah, which they were reading, so he opens up the scroll. He found the place where it was written, and then he begins to read. And Luke tells us what he reads. This is from Isaiah 61, Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, 
gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So we've got the word of God himself, the Son of God himself, saying that prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled in connection with his first advent. Well, let's go back and look at Isaiah 61. Anytime you see the New Testament quote an Old Testament passage, you should go back and look at it because it can be very instructive and it can also help you avoid misinterpretation of the New Testament passage. So it's Isaiah 61 verse 1. This should sound familiar. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now that's where Jesus stopped. Literally mid-sentence. It's also in the middle of verse 2, but again, the verses weren't there originally, but it is grammatically in the middle of a sentence. You should see a comma after the word Lord, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus puts a period where the Old Testament puts a comma. And he stops right there mid-sentence and says, Today this has been fulfilled. But what about the rest of it? And it goes on to say, The day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who mourn in Zion, to bring beauty for ashes and so forth. All of that relates to the great day of the Lord's wrath and the second coming. When, God, when Jesus does come, Revelation 19 tells us, uh, to tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. So there's another example. Isaiah the prophet is talking about the coming Messiah. Part of it's already happened. Part of it awaits future fulfillment. So we call that partial fulfillment. We see a lot of that in the Old Testament. Daniel 9 is another classic example. It's a 490-year prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, Part of it's been fulfilled, the first 483 years. Part of it awaits future fulfillment. Not, not uncommon. Some prophecies are singular, direct, one and done, like Isaiah 7.14. But some are partial, and you see them fulfilled in stages. So, Good question. I was probably way more than you wanted to, me to say. But uh, any other questions or, or comments about anything we've talked about? All right. So let's move on then. I think we've got time to do this next analogy. Remember, this section has parable, analogy, 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 parable. And we're just in the midst of this readiness section. Uh, and the, the future nation of Israel needs to be ready. So now we come to the analogy of the faithful and evil servant, verses 45 to 51. Uh, Jesus is going to get even more specific in his exhortation to, be wa to watch and be ready. And specifically here, this is really interesting, we find that Jesus explains that for some who are alive at the second coming of Christ, his return will occur sooner than they expected. So you ought to write out beside in the margin of your Bible, beside verses 45 to 51, the faithful and evil servants, some people will find that Christ comes sooner than they thought. So let's read it. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. I Surely I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Uh, those who are faithful in doing what Jesus warns them to be doing will be blessed at his return. But he says, but if the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delayed in his coming. In other words, I've got plenty of time, you know. 
There's no rush, you know. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. See the continuing theme here of watchfulness and readiness? And, and don't get caught up in the details. Again, these are just analogies and analogies and parables in Scripture. We want to look for the main point unless the text itself identifies corresponding realities with every single detail. We just want to keep the big picture in mind. Otherwise, it's speculation. It's particularly important when we get to the wise, ten, the five wise and five foolish virgins because people have, are all over the map trying to identify the oil and the lamps and the this and the that, and that's not the point of the parable. Same thing is true here. Uh, Israel needs to be ready because uh, you know when he comes back, unless they believe the gospel, remember what we talked about in Romans 10 and 11? They, they have to believe how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? So individual faith has to come first, as with any person who hopes to be saved and enter the kingdom. We have to believe in Jesus. But then nationally they can call out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they can't call on him in whom they have not believed. And if you're asleep at the wheel, Israel, uh, Jew, during the tribulation period, uh, and you think you've got plenty of time because you think your master is delayed, you better be careful because his coming might occur sooner than you think. Uh, so don't miss it. Uh, many Jews will miss the return of Christ because they'll be deceived. They'll take the mark of the beast and they'll regret it for all of eternity. Um, and that's what weeping and gnashing of teeth refers to there. Um, there is a unfortunate false teaching that has uh, really gotten some traction in recent years, the last couple of decades, although it's, it's goes way back, but it's, it's really kind of reemerged uh, based on uh, outer darkness passages in particular. This is not one of those outer darkness passages. There are three, Matthew 8, Matthew 21, and Matthew 25. We'll see it in a mo in, in, as we get to it in the Olivet Discourse. But they also talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth. And weeping and gnashing of teeth is a specific term that refers to hell and people who die in unbelief and spend eternity having never received the free gift of eternal life. Um, and I've talked about this extensively. I did a five-part series on the radio about outer darkness. And at Not By Works, we have a book. I didn't write it, but some colleagues of mine wrote an outstanding book called Should Christians Fear Outer Darkness? And the answer is a, a resounding no. And they show clearly uh, how that is a misunderstanding. But the teaching, the false teaching, goes something like this, that Jesus was teaching in Matthew 8, Matthew 21, and Matthew 25, that really bad Christians who, don't, who aren't faithful, when they die, they'll be cast into torment for a thousand years during the millennial phase of the kingdom where they're tormented and weeping and gnashing their teeth. But not to worry, at the end of that thousand years, they'll be let out and go on to heaven. It's sometimes called Christian purgatory. And that is nonsense. I'm sorry. It, it doesn't understand anything about the wrath of God. It doesn't understand the context of these passages in Matthew, which are all Jewish in nature. The church wasn't in existence. And the same thing can be said here. This isn't uh, talking about Christians. It's talking about unbelievers. And for many people during the tribulation period, they may think, you know, early on, especially after the rapture, when millions of people have disappeared and the world is in chaos, people are going to probably really be fixated on prophetic things, and then they'll believe uh, the great deception. The, they'll begin to, to follow this anti-Christ, this false Christ leader who sets himself up as a world dictator, a world tyrant. 
uh, empowered by Satan himself. And over time, even though it'll be the end of the world as we know it, and things will totally be different, they will settle into the new normal. And they'll begin to uh, think, okay, this is new, this is different, this is bad, this is a whole new world, but uh, okay, I'll accept it. And they'll sort of think, you know, he hasn't come yet. You know, I have a picture in my mind of after the rapture, those who are left behind looking up almost nonstop for what happens next, right? I mean, think about it. People have just disappeared, and the world is going to be told a lie. Maybe they'll blame it on aliens or who knows what they're going to blame it on. Uh, but people are going to be thinking, well, could it happen again? And they'll be looking up. But I think over the seven years, their eyes will slowly begin to shift down because of the great last day's deception and, and end up focusing on other things. And for those people, they will be caught off guard. So the same application can be made because we see other watchfulness passages in the epistles to Christians of the present age and the rapture. There's an urgency uh, to the gospel in the present age. And that's why Not By Works Ministries is committed to the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel because we don't know uh, when the trumpet's going to sound and we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We don't know. And if you don't know the Lord uh, and that day comes, then, you know, I believe you, it's still possible to get saved after the rapture. Some people take 2 Thessalonians 2 a little differently and say, you can't, I'm not sure we can be that particular about that passage. And we certainly know from the biblical record that many from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language will get saved after the rapture. But for those who've heard the gospel before the rapture and are left behind because they never believed it, it's certainly at the very least we can say going to be extremely difficult because if you are deceived this side of the rapture, and didn't trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation, why would you think you could suddenly just turn on a dime and trust in Jesus after the rapture when deception is running rampant? So so that's the analogy of the faithful and evil servants. Any questions before we close? We're out of time, but if we got another minute or two for one, one question, anybody? Yeah? How long do you think it will take for the actual rapturing process to happen because, you know, the dead in Christ is going to rise first and then stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And fortunately, the Bible tells us how long it'll take. The twinkling of an eye, right? The blink of an eye. How fast can you blink your eye? That's how long it'll take. Matthew, or 1 Corinthians 15. So I meant to put this up earlier. We've shown it every week, but this is the uh, end times chart. So, uh, we're, we're in that middle period there, the seven years, and we were talking a, a lot today about the second coming, and we looked at a lot of Old Testament prophecies related to the second coming over there, that down arrow on the far right. But your question was about the rapture, which is over here, and, uh, and it'll happen just like that, that quick. You know, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. All right, well, let's close it down. We'll come back together here at 10 o'clock for our worship service. And those that are watching the live stream, the live stream will be of just the message. So probably about 1030-ish, give or take five minutes, is when the live stream will resume.